Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Coronavirus Update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast, so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Right now, I'm delighted to welcome my first guest of this hour. Uh, it's Dr. David Nabarro. He's Special Envoy on COVID-19 to the World Health Organization. And he's also Professor of Global Health at Imperial College London. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Julia. How do you do? Good morning. Uh, very well indeed, sir. Um, my first question to you, I suppose it's very straightforward and simple. How is Britain doing in the context of the world's fight against coronavirus, not just in Europe, across the rest of the world? How do you think Britain is doing? Well, I give Britain really good marks, mostly because the British people are beginning to realise how serious this is. And just the discussion you had just now made me think how important it is that everybody realises this is a dangerous virus and it's not going to go away in the foreseeable future. And we have to adapt our lives really to living with it. In 1849, a British uh, epidemiologist called John Snow discovered that cholera was carried through sewage contamination of water. And subsequently, people had to change the way in which they looked after themselves and dealt with excreta. Well, now we've got a virus that's going to have to change some aspects of the way in which we relate to each other and what we do when we feel ill. And we'll learn to adapt to it. We are enormously adaptable people, humans, and we'll get it right. Um, do you think that our lives are going to change forever? I think a lot of people thought that, oh, the lockdown, three weeks, I can get through that. I'll put my business back, uh, you know, uh, uh, working and, I'll, and I'll, I'll be out and about. So I won't have to count too much. I think uh, the slow realisation now for a lot of people yeah. who weren't perhaps paying attention that this is really for weeks and weeks ahead, possibly even a couple of months ahead. Oh, I think it's a game changer, really. I mean, but I want to stress that there are communities all over the world that are still living with the threat of disease stalking them. Uh, I worked a lot in West Africa where we had Ebola and people used to tell me, we know about these kinds of things. We do from time to time get diseases that come and ravage us, but we learn how to manage them. And I do think that everybody will come to terms with this. And it, it won't mean that we have to lock down the economy forever. Quite the opposite. Actually, what will happen is that societies will get really strong at being able to keep themselves healthy identifying those who are not well and supporting them as they isolate for two weeks. But that doesn't mean everything else stops. And it's getting those defences in place at community level, learning how we ourselves can work together to get on top of this virus 
that's what we really are doing during lockdown. And I, I feel it happening, you know. And, and that's why I'm pretty certain that as we come through lockdown, the sort of new look normal will be one that we can all live with and we will enjoy it. It's just we have to do a few things differently. And there will be some challenges about travel and working out how we're going to be able to get from one country to another. But I'm also pretty certain that if countries work together, we can solve it. The one thing we don't want at the moment is countries saying, we're going to go it alone, we'll do it our way. How on earth then will we get international travel going again? So unity between countries is absolutely key right now. Well, that's also a crucial role for the World Health Organization. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's run by the UN. Now, you were a special advisor. You, me- you mentioned Ebola. You were a special advisor to the UN's general secretary yeah. and ran the UN's response to Ebola. Um, and obviously, that did eventually, when we've got America involved and they realized the threat to them, um, I'll, I'll get a, a, an international response. Has there been enough of, of international cooperation uh, on this issue? And has the World Health Organization uh, done enough? There are lots of accusations that the WHO actually dropped the ball, believed a load of nonsense that was coming out of China, didn't pay attention, issued a tweet in January saying there's no evidence of human-to-human transmission when there was already very large amounts of evidence that that was the case. Um, Has the international response been the correct response? Well, every time I've been involved in any kind of outbreak or pandemic, there's always a lot of questions when you're actually doing the response because each, each day... You have to weigh up the information you've got and you have to make your choices on what you know. And afterwards, there's always this power of the retrospectoscope looking back and dissecting out what happened. And, you know, I think that's really good. And I'm looking forward to all the analyses of who did what, which will be done when we get through this emergency. For now, what I'd say is that there's only one organisation in the world that's got an uh, oversight of what's going on, that's got a dashboard of what's happening all over the world, And it relies entirely on what the information it receives from the countries. But when it gets that information, it puts it all together and says, we think this is what needs to be done. We advise that. We don't know about the other. And, and, you know, I've I've worked in and around global issues for years. And I'm really pleased with what the World Health Organization has been able to do. Uh, I think that it is providing a a centre point for for advice. And if if people people think that it's, it's got it wrong... What I'd suggest is hold your fire for now. Let's get through this. This is an epic struggle. It involves all 7.6 billion people in the world. Let's deal with it and get on top of it as best we can. And then call, call us all to account. We're ready for that. Well, that's it. I mean, the, the World Health Organization called its own self to account over, over its handling of Ebola and, and other issues. I'm just wondering oh, if got, enough lessons are being learned. From, we got big inquiries from all over the world, I tell you. I, I, there were at least five inquiries by different groups including one led by a senior British academic. And they did find some things wrong. And I uh, I was involved, because I wasn't at the WHO at the time, I was involved in a huge reform programme that was in place. But it's one thing to say this is needed. There's quite another thing for the governments who own the World Health Organisation to say, OK, we'll give give you what you need to make it happen. We'll change the rules so you can do it. So you're often in a bit of a cleft stick because these international organisations, they're not independent they are owned by the countries the countries that at the moment are trying to struggle to deal with the virus and it really you operate in that space it's it's a good space because working together across countries as far as i'm concerned is the only way to deal with big problems but it's also quite a tricky space because countries also exercise their ownership rights from time to time and they narrow your room for maneuver but i've watched the way in which they're handling this one i'm not working for the who i'm actually helping them out 
And I must say that uh, I, I'm really pleased with the various decisions they've made. But as I say, we'll, we'll be called to account and, and we want that because okay. we want to keep, keep making it better. Well, indeed, you, you can't unless we do, do still question these things. And in the yes. issue of testing, now, Dr. Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, was saying, you know, test, test, test. Uh, come, come, some countries like South Korea, uh, uh, Taiwan did this, Germany and Europe did this. Um, Britain, I mean, actually, we, we've actually tested far more people than many, many other countries, including yes, the Western world. But we are far behind uh, where, where Germany is, although this pledge now from the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, to get to 100,000 yeah. tests a day sure. by the end of this month. Uh, first of all, do you think that the government did, uh, you know, drop the ball themselves? Did they make mistakes by not carrying on testing? And second, do you think that it is possible to achieve in this country, from what you know, uh, tests of 100,000 a day? So, Julia, that's a bit of a trick question there, because p part of the way in which I work is not to criticise anybody for actions that have been taken, because I can't change what they did. You know, what I can do is offer directions for the future. So let me explain why testing has been advocated by WHO. When, when you're dealing with this kind of thing, you need to know where the virus is. That's our primary, primary concern, is to be able to help communities know where the virus is, governments to know where the virus is, the world to know. And there's only one way to be truly sure of where the virus is, and that's by testing for the virus. Now, unfortunately, the, the testing machinery is quite complex, and you do need to have sophisticated labs to do the work. So ramping up testing in a big rush is a, is a difficult thing to do. Now, we said, please test as much as you can, because we believe that countries, when they're adopting their plans and deciding what to do, when to come out of lockdown, need to have some pretty good idea of where the virus is, who's being affected. Because when you look at death figures or, or even disease figures, you're, you're perhaps only getting half the story. So that's why we said do testing as much as you can. But we've always said we know that some countries are going to face difficulty with ramping up to the level that they want. And so we've also suggested other ways of tracking where the virus is. Not so good, but still collecting information about people's symptoms on cell phone apps, having geocoding is a very useful way of understanding the pattern. And that sort of thing is emerging in the UK. So, I, I mean, I'm still going to say to you that I'm really pleased to see what's happening in the UK. I'm pleased to see the seriousness with which people are taking this. And I'm pleased also to hear advice from you that people should actually take the government advice about physical distancing seriously, because actually that's very, very important right now in order to continue to get ahead of this virus. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for joining us, Dr. David Nabarro, Special Envoy in COVID-19 to the World Health Organization, also Professor of Global Health at Imperial College London. Very much appreciate you joining us. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. morning to you. This is Talk Radio Breakfast with me, Julia Hartley-Brewer. Thank you so much for your company this morning. Uh, so much more to talk about this morning uh, with my guest, uh, Steve Allen, who's a comedian, broadcaster, and former chemist. He's joining me live from his home, as I'm joining uh, you live from my home on day 18 of the lockdown. Good morning to you once again, Steve. Good morning. Good morning. Now, a uh, quick question to you before we go to our next guest. Um, lots of businesses, we've been talking about the exit strategy for the lockdown, but there are still lots of businesses and lots of uh, companies that are still uh, working. And of course, we know supermarkets are absolutely crucial uh, for us uh, and, and uh, lots of other smaller shops providing those essential goods. But one of the uh, uh, businesses that is allowed, an industry still allowed to continue, is the uh, manufacturing where necessary and, of course, uh, where it could be safe for people to work alongside each other and also construction. Lots of talk in recent weeks uh, of demands from labour that construction sites be closed down. Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, seems to think that everyone on the tube is working on a construction site. Certainly not what I've seen in the pictures. Uh, but what do you think? Do you think that is the case? Should they be shut down? Um, possibly temporarily. I think long term, or me, we're talking medium term, aren't we? But I, I think we need to get a system in place that we could try and achieve that two metre uh, distancing. If we can get more of that in, then I think we should be happier to see industries continue. We don't want to entirely ruin the economy. We do want to save lives, but you do need to have an economy left to go back to when the lockdown comes out. So if we could change the rules and restrictions, get people slightly more distance, and then we could continue with that kind of work. Absolutely. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's talk to two guests about this now. Uh, Saki Bharti, he's a Conservative MP and former president of the Greater Birmingham Chamber of Commerce. And also, we're going to talk to Rico Votulovic. He's a head of housing at the National Federation of Builders. Good morning to you both, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, right. Um, if I can start with you, uh, Saki Bharti. Um, um, there, there seems to be a, a lot of pressure, a lot of idea that, that construction workers are somehow sort of, I don't know, the, the bogey uh, men, I'm assuming mostly men, in, in this, uh, in this uh, outbreak. Uh, Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, is very critical of construction workers travelling on the tube, insisting they shouldn't be on the tube. They're, they're, not, they're not essential workers, despite the fact that government legislation is very clear. If you can't work from home, uh, you are entitled to go to work. And, and there is a, you know, a balance of risk there. Um, do you think we should be uh, cutting down, cutting back on uh, non-vital construction work uh, and any manufacturing of goods that aren't essential? Well, I, I think that uh, you've hit the nail on the head. The government advice has been very clear that where possible, uh, we should be obviously maintaining social uh, distancing as much as possible. And if you can't work from home, uh, then we should be able to uh, have safe environments to do so. Um, my, my feeling on this is actually that uh, where businesses are, have to open or are opening and construction workers are going to work, they should have uh, enough provision there for construction workers to have enough social distancing. Um, and for me, these measures really come down to common sense. And 
um, certainly business owners need to provide a safe environment for uh, their workers uh, to be able to operate. Um, but, you know, there, there always has to be a balance uh, in terms of, um, you know, trying to uh, preserve lives, keep safety there, but also trying to keep uh, some form of the economy going because obviously there will be a post-corona environment. But protection of individuals has to be paramount. Well, indeed, I mean, especially as a lot of construction work in particular is outdoors. I mean, it's very difficult, I think, in factories, uh, some of the manufacturing, that's going to be pretty hard with people, perhaps on production lines, standing too close to each other. And obviously the, the, the canteens and the like, that's, that's, it's going to be very, very difficult to maintain that social distancing and, and keep uh, the workers safe. So we know an awful lot of manufacturing structure has cut down. But I would have thought that on construction sites, it was largely possible to people to stay apart. And the fact that they are in the open air would make it safer as well. Well, I, I agree with you. I, I think it should be um, possible. Um, and, you know, I come back to that point about common sense that, you know, if, if where they are operating, you know, the, the construction site manager should obviously make every provision to make sure that their workers are working in a safe environment um, and are able to keep uh, distance, uh, social distancing. And I, actually, you know, I get constituents writing to me about um, if they see something in construction sites. I think it's a perfectly valid thing to do um, because, you know, uh, one of the early guests, earlier guests talked about uh, policing with consent, etc. But, you know, if they are finding instances where social distancing isn't being met, actually it's right to call it out and say, well, actually, please try and keep that distance there so uh, people can operate in a safe environment because we have to protect everybody um, and we have to provide an environment where everyone is protected. We are in, of course, unprecedented times as we uh, you will hear many, 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 many times and yeah. throughout this crisis. And the truth of the matter is we are going to have to adapt to an ever-evolving situation. Absolutely. Thank you, Bati, uh, Thank you very much indeed. And let's turn to Rico uh, Votolovic, the head of uh, housing at the National Federation of Builders. Um, good morning to you, sir. You, you seem to, you're in your industry, you seem to have been sort of the brunt of some of the, uh, the biggest criticism uh, during this lockdown about construction workers still going to work and how this all must stop, uh, the likes of Sadiq Khan, the London Mayor, saying. Um, why is construction able to continue at this time? Not all construction is, um, and I think that uh, the criticism has been fair um, because there have been sites where social distancing hasn't been maintained. But industry has worked really hard to release site operating procedures and really, if you're tra- in a trade association especially, really encourage your members to do the right thing. So in our federation, many of our members have had to shut down because they can't maintain the social distancing. And the staff and workers, um, that wider supply chain always come first, Many have, um, and we don't really hear about the good, the good looks, the good, the good news stories. Yes, of course. We don't, we don't see those. You know, we post some pictures. We've had people um, support our members who have done a good job on site, and they've taken photos and said, you know, it's brilliant that you've managed to uh, do this. But the, the, the story has been really focused in London, and there are some sites where social distancing hasn't been maintained. You mentioned canteens earlier. You know, it, it can be difficult, but it's really important that. As an industry, we take this criticism, we're continually updating our site operating procedures and we really support our members because they remember the financial crash, they remember 100,000 jobs going and a third of house builders leaving the industry. And without the the support, which isn't quite there from government yet, we're getting there uh, and they're reforming their loans that not everyone can access and they're reforming their cash flows. 
until that changes, they themselves are going to struggle to stop operating. And, and, and this is the thing, isn't it, also? But again, I imagine also there's quite a lot of construction work where actually it would be quite dangerous to suddenly stop uh, just down tools, you know, on the day that the lockdown's called. That there'll be, uh, you know, the process of attaching gas mains or goodness knows what else uh, and actually to make the building safe uh, to, to, uh, to enable it to be protected uh, from the elements that, that some building work does have to continue, even if uh, someone else might think that doesn't look necessary. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I think that's really important and something that often gets lost. Uh, and it's not just that, it's when you mothball a site, when you stop a site, you've got to secure that site and make it safe. And that in itself, if you immediately stop all construction, how on earth are we going to ensure that um, that work can continue? But also, how do you bring these people back into the industry afterwards? It takes, can take a long time to get a site back, back uh, running again, and there might be safety issues. But also, if businesses stop operating and you suddenly need emergency workers, where do they come from? You know, if, if you're doing gas safety or plumbing or you've got an open-air roof, how do you get this stuff fixed if the industry is down tools? So I understand the criticism. I think it's absolutely fair to challenge the industry to get better and improve. But of all the industries, I think the construction is doing one of the best jobs Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Uh, let's talk to Robert Halford, who's chair of the Education Select Committee. He's also Conservative MP uh, for Harlow. And he joins us to discuss a, a very worrying story about the children who are entitled to be going to school. Though, of course, we're now on currently on Easter holidays. Uh, but the children who are entitled to be going to school because they are the children, not just the key workers, but also because they are vulnerable children who social workers are concerned about. And the worryingly low number of them who are appearing in the classroom. Good morning to you, Robert. Uh, good morning. Hello there. Good morning. Hello. Um, and this is very concerning. Isn't it? Let's just explain what, what the, the rule has been, though, because if you were a child of a key worker who's got no choice, they have to actually uh, have their children at school, but maybe both of them are key workers, one, say a police officer, one uh, working in the NHS. Uh, the schools have stayed open to provide essentially childcare rather than any particular lessons for those children, but also children who are in care, children who are known to be vulnerable, uh, who are also entitled to a school place. But, but we are not seeing all those children turn up at school. No, in fact, um, there's been a survey and 55% of teachers from the most disadvantaged schools think that the average pupil in their class is learning for less than one hour a day. And there is a real worry that uh, vulnerable children, some children in care or parent, uh, children who have uh, difficulties at home and for one reason or another, the parents are not looking after them, uh, are not going to school and really suffering. And... Uh, I think this is something that um, is going to go on until these schools go back, but to the government need to take action on this. Well, this is it. I mean, the worry is that, you know, about what the children are doing instead, whether their parents, again, presumably they're at risk because there is not proper parenting going on in the home, and whether that's because uh, we've got parents on drugs or alcohol or parents with severe mental health problems. It's sort of neither here nor there, is it? The children need to be in a safe place and perhaps not just you know, wandering the streets, which they may well be doing without parental con uh, control, but they, they may indeed be in unsafe homes as well. Uh, very much so. And not only that, there are a lot of uh, uh, children who don't have access to online learning. A, a teacher in my constituency of Harlow told me yesterday that uh, in, in his school, 8% of uh, children don't have any access to the internet at all. And 
what um, there's going to need to be a massive catch-up programme uh, once the schools go back and the coronavirus is over. And I think the government is going to have to set up a national mentoring scheme, uh, have a catch-up premium to uh, make sure those kids who have been left behind are not left behind still uh, further. And also there needs to be a kind of national volunteer scheme for schools as well, where we perhaps ask retired teachers and uh, to go back and uh, look after and help uh, those schools who are teaching uh, vulnerable pupils. Yeah, I mean, this is the concern, isn't it? My, my daughter's school returns next Thursday, I think. And uh, again, you have to worry about getting school uniform ready, so less of a concern. But but they're providing some fantastic online lessons. I think a little bit frustrating for some of the children and uh, and, and for some of the, the uh, teachers who aren't very tech savvy. But there is still learning going on in, in the, the week before the end of term and, and, and it will continue next week. Um, for a lot of children, there's just no teaching going on, and certainly for primary school teach, uh, children, who are who are vulnerable and got parents who perhaps are not engaged with this stuff or unable to engage with the stuff for whatever reasons for their of their own lives. Um, those children are, are there is such a way that they are going to be left behind. These are such crucial years, not just for someone studying for their GCSEs or their A levels, but almost every single year of school life. And people often forget that actually primary school years, those foundation years are absolutely crucial and there are so many children who are coming from the homes where education is is the route out education is the escape and they're the ones who are going to lose out the most well this is the uh, big issue because um, there are incredible things going on online everything from the national farmers union providing lessons the government themselves have published amazing online courses a lot of them free on websites that everyone can access but if you don't have access to a computer, or you're from a very low-income or disadvantaged background, you are going to be left behind. We've already got a problem with left-behind pupils, white working-class uh, pupils perform underperform compared to uh, almost every other uh, peer group. And that's why I think we have to have a catch-up programme once all this is over. And you, you, what, all the stats they show, if you have proper mentoring, something like just 30 uh, uh, minutes for three times a week, you can actually improve a pupil's progress, disadvantaged pupil's progress by about five, uh, five months. So we need to really look at these things and the councils have to monitor those kids who are vulnerable yeah. who are not in school and work with the schools to make sure these kids are being looked after. Absolutely. And just finally, um, I must ask you about Boris Johnson. I think just such happy news last night that he was out of intensive care, uh, apparently in a, a very good, really extremely good spirits was the quote from number 10. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, I think most people are over the moon and I hope that he actually does take it easy this time because I think that from all accounts he got a lot worse because he carried on working when, when you have this awful disease you've got to rest properly and uh, it is great news i think everyone just breathed a huge sigh of relief that the leader of the nation as i said um on your program the other day the lion king is back and uh, it looks like he's back anyway and uh, i think it's great news over easter across the uk online on dab and on your smart speaker talk radio Thanks for listening to today's Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. Please don't forget to like, comment and most importantly, subscribe. And you can catch me live on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 till 10. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 